episode 327, Pharma Hooking Up with Startups. Today, I speak with Naomi Freed, PhD, about Farmstars. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. You know, you can subscribe to the show two ways. One way is through the iTunes podcast app or your podcast app of choice. That's a cool way to subscribe because then the show just kind of turns up in your podcast app each week and you can decide to listen to it on the fly. The other way is to subscribe on our website. This is more like a newsletter subscription. If you subscribe this way, you get an email each week that transcribes the show introduction plus includes timed show notes. Many people subscribe both ways, just saying, because each way has sort of like different benefits that are pretty complementary. If you subscribe to the newsletter, you only get the newsletter. We are frankly way too busy doing other things to send out other emails. Also, you can easily unsubscribe at any time. I saw a post the other day in Twitter. Someone wrote, so much can be done to improve community and share lessons to improve outcomes. The trick is making money without selling patient data to pharma. Here's my question for you, and I'm legit asking. I have seen many use cases that benefit patients and that are incredibly worthwhile, but no one is willing to pay for them. That's the first point of this tweet I just read. That's what it infers. And I've seen it time and time again. Gaps in care no one is willing to fill. If you're speaking about very specific patient populations in very specific therapeutic categories, like some rare diseases, you're not going to find basically anyone besides pharma who has the bandwidth, the money, and the expertise, and the reach to fill that gap. If you contemplate this further, and I have, pharma might be the only entity who, if they do it, the price of healthcare doesn't immediately go up. Hear me out here because I'm wading into controversial waters. So let me make my point before you jump me in a dark alley. If pharma does something and it comes out of their existing marketing budget or their R&D budget or some other existing budget, them spending money on filling a patient gap versus them spending money on some TV ad is not going to impact the price of the drug either way. If the price of the drug is already too high, the price of the drug is still too high. That's going to be true regardless. Why not let pharma pay the freight for making sure their own patient populations get the best care possible? This show is posted on LinkedIn and Twitter. Let me know what your thoughts are. I'm very interested. Today, I am really pleased to be speaking with Naomi Freed, PhD. Dr. Freed has had and continues to have a storied career. Each of her roles has always circled around innovation. She's been the chief innovation officer at Boston Children's, where she built their first digital health accelerator. She was recruited by Biogen after that to be their VP of innovation and external partnerships. She founded a consulting practice focused on innovation. And her latest endeavor, which she talks about later on in the show, is Farmstars, which is, in my own words, a sort of 10-week crash course slash accelerator for digital health startups looking to work with pharma, and for pharma, looking to work with digital health startups. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Also, as, I don't know, maybe disclaimer, Aventria has done much work with pharma, helping to incorporate startup products into various patient solutions. I should likely mention that. Naomi Freed, PhD. Welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you, Stacey. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Let's talk about this pharma startup gap, which, as you have mentioned, is a gap in the culture and the timing and the language that pharma uses as compared to startups. I would love to hear 
a maybe like a narrative on a colossal failure (laughs) that can really highlight the impact of that gap. Yes, let me put together sort of a composite of the pharma startup gap, which can exist in many forms and at every turn in a potential partnership between a pharma and a startup. And, you know, pharma and startups are inherently different. And those differences are a double-edged sword. The differences are what make things difficult, but they also contribute to the unique and important value that each side brings to the table. So let's take an imaginary company. It's called Health Tech Inc., three-year-old digital health startup with a prototype that will help measure and report patient data remotely. And Health Tech believes their solution could be of great value to pharma to support patients on therapy as well as in clinical trials. If we create a, a hypothetical case study with Health Tech, let's imagine that they approach Molecule Pharma, a 25,000 employee pharmaceutical company with therapies for a variety of chronic conditions. So I think the first challenge is around sort of finding each other. So let's say the CEO of Health Tech attends a conference, meets a clinical operations lead of Molecule Pharma. They discuss the solution. The clinical ops lead thinks it's a cool idea. And Health Tech CEO leaves with a card and an exciting prospect. Anyway, two weeks later, they have a call. The clinical op lead promises to run it up the flagpole. Fast forward two months later, and no progress has been made. There's been emails between Health Tech and Molecule Corp, but they've kind of slowed to a stop. Turns out that Health Tech's contact with Molecule Corp was not a decision maker. And without other sort of more appropriate contacts inside of pharma or some other clear signal that this tool fits perfectly with Molecule strategy, the CEO of the startup is left with the next steps in the hands of this one clinical op lead. I think the point that you're highlighting is that, as you mentioned, Pharma Molecule has 25,000 employees. Yes. This is a vast organization with many layers of decision making. And that might not necessarily be something that a relatively flat, small, agile health tech startup, including Health Tech Inc. (laughs) that we're using in this example, really recognizes. Exactly. It sounds really simple, but actually a critical step is is establishing a successful engagement, finding the right person, the right people. These organizations can be very opaque and getting their foot in the door for a start to find the right person and have a productive conversation is not so easy. I would say on the flip side, it's also sometimes hard for big pharma to find startups that are at the right stage or have the right focus. Well, it's funny because I thought you were going to say sometimes it's hard for big pharma to navigate itself. (laughs) I had Troy Larsgaard on the show a bit ago from Johns Hopkins. And one of the things that he was saying that he valued in account managers who go out to health systems is to have an account manager that's able to navigate his or her own organization. It's very challenging. And I'll just tell you one thing about FarmStars. We have pharmaceutical members and we're asking them to designate a liaison to the program to work with the startups in our program. And we've asked that liaison be capable of doing exactly what you described, navigating their own organization and bringing the right people to the table. I could see that it would be very difficult even just for random clinical operations person to designate themselves as someone who's going to just all of a sudden start working with startups. You would have to be somebody with immense social capital internally and immense drive to figure out how to do that unilaterally. Yeah. So if we go back to our composite example again, so we can imagine that the CEO of Health Tech is eventually referred to the head of digital health innovation at Molecule. Okay. So they get to the right place. Yes, (laughs) eventually, but it's not so easy. 
who is interested in hearing more? Okay, but because health tech technology is proprietary, they ask Molecule to sign an NDA and the NDA is sent. And then this begins a two month long process back and forth requested by Molecule's lawyers. And, you know, the CEO of the startup can't understand why it's taking so long to just sign an NDA. And then even, you know, once they get past the NDA, it can take, I don't know, another month to set up the first meeting to talk about the solution. We're five months in now. I'm just trying to keep track of the timeline here. Yeah, I think we're about uh, four months, four, four or five months. Yes. Okay, uh, so we're four or five um, months and basically we've just managed to sign the NDA. Right. And sit okay. down for what actually is going to be, you know, the, the first meeting. And then it could happen. It doesn't always. But the health tech CEO was told that a key member of the team recently left Molecule. And so they actually need to wait until that role is filled to move forward with the startup. When that meeting finally occurs and health tech presents a product and it it's technical innovation. But now health tech struggles a little bit to articulate its value to pharma and why it's worth it to Molecule financially. And it turns out that in this conversation, health tech actually focuses entirely on the product that they're developing, that they're so excited about, and the benefit to the patient, which is really important. But they fail to make a clear business case for Molecule in terms of, you know, what the cost savings is or the efficiency or how this is a competitive differentiator or how this will enhance their brand. And they don't really explain why a partnership with health tech is a win-win. Health Tech Inc. talks about its own product and is not necessarily needs oriented, which is not just a problem that health tech startups have. I mean, it's, it's, it is one of the hardest things to do as a marketer. It is the point that you're making that this may be exacerbated to some extent because it's very difficult to even understand the needs of pharma. It's a pretty opaque black box sometimes. Yeah, this is a lot of what contributes to that pharma startup gap is a lack of understanding, certainly on the start side, as to what's happening within pharma. You know, what is their strategy? What's important? You know, you can do your homework, but the best way to sort of navigate this is, again, as I said, to have a guide, have someone who can help you understand, because it's really critical that that value proposition be articulated in that first meeting clearly. This then gets to the fact that the startup needs to actually understand how big pharma functions and how it's organized. In this composite example, what probably happens next is that without health tech knowing that they didn't kill it at that meeting and, and didn't really present the value proposition, Molecule still tries to understand and they have internal discussions about what they heard and what the actual value is to their organization. And they try to themselves assess the value and alignment with their corporate strategy. But it's a much heavier lift for them. And this is, again, going to sort of slow things down because there's not a clear path as to who should be engaged from the pharma side because the value proposition wasn't well articulated. Well, and I think also an important point to that is that it's not like Health Tech Inc. exists in a vacuum, that it's mm -hmm. that the pharma is considering, well, you know, we go with Health Tech Inc. or we go with nothing. <laughs> pharma probably also has 16 other of their usual suspect vendors who are coming in, maybe pitching something not quite as good, maybe something similar. And the pharma company already has a baseline of a established performance. Like they know that if they go with vendor A, it's not going to be as good potentially as what Health Tech Inc. might be able to pull out. But, you know, sometimes a surety of 
slightly below average performance is less risky than potentially amazing performance or abysmal failure, especially if it's going to cost budget. They might wind up having a career problem, (laughs) depending on how much money they're anticipating spending here. Yeah, and I think also there's some chemistry involved from from molecule side. If you know health tech CEO seems prepared, easy to work with, understands, speaks their language, understands the unmet need, this is going to be a much more comfortable partnership than if molecule feels like they have to take health tech on an educational journey and explain things to them and show them the way. Then you know they're not going to be so appealing. Even if, as you said, their product is better, if it's such an uphill battle to get them through the hoops and to work with them, they may not be the partner of choice. Well, you know, let me bring up something else, the legality of some of the pitches. That takes me really into sort of the next, you know, sort of big issue, which is sort of around decision making and deal timing. So back to our our example, and let's give a couple more months of diligence and accessing potential fit by some internal committee within Molecule. So what are we at now? We're at seven months? Probably five, six months, seven. Yeah. You know, Molecule actually reaches out again and says it's ready to progress the next step. So health tech's really excited at this point. You know, it's been about six months and their Series A funding is dwindling. And so now they're going to meet with a partnership team and they're going to talk with finance and legal. And now they're going to, you know, negotiate. Well, that's what they think. Only what they discover is the next step is actually due diligence financial and scientific validation to understand the risks and values of health tech to Molecule. These evaluations take at least three months. There's also at this stage, you know, the potential for disagreement on deal terms, which have not yet even been worked out. And I think this goes to how surprised startups often are about who's involved with the decision-making process. Startups have a few employees. They make decisions quickly. They can pivot. They can even change their product. But for them, time is of the essence. And they want to move quickly. They want to land clients. They want to sell a product. If not, they may run out of funding. This is in pretty stark contrast to pharma that doesn't have those same type of financial pressures to do a deal. Their internal process in deal-making may take months or even longer. Don't forget, pharma tend to have more financial resources, they have budgets, they have budget cycles, and they think in terms of years rather than weeks or months. I think the other point here is that decision-making in pharma often are made by groups and there's many stakeholders involved. And there may even be many rounds of review that have to happen before consensus is built. The one big hashtag epic fail I have seen startups make is they come in with a pitch that sounds like this. We have this product and we want pharma to pay us to install it in provider organizations. And the first question that anyone who works at pharma is going to ask is, are you also selling that product? And if the answer is yes, then immediately what is being asked of pharma is illegal. It's a kickback because pharma can't give something to a provider 
that is worth money. I mean, basically, they're just kind of giving a provider money at that juncture. And I think that that, you know, just nuances like that are something that is just so foreign to maybe even the the information that's available to a startup to realize that this is what's going on here, that we have just breached the anti-kickback statute. Stacey, you are 100% right. And let me share a regulatory oversight compliance issue example in this composite. So let's say the health tech CEO is very committed to engaging with Molecule and he wants to reinforce the value of his product. So he arranges a meeting with a physician at a treatment center where he's consulted and on the development of the solution, he invites some members of Molecule to come. When they arrive, the CEO of Health Tech has arranged to have lunch for the medical team brought in. And in addition, while waiting for others to arrive, the CEO is chatting with patients in the waiting room about their participation in the trial, what they think of the Health Tech product. When the Molecule team arrives, they're shocked. They explain to the CEO that many things he's done have violated the Sunshine Act, the anti-kickback rules, and they cannot even participate in the meeting. Then Molecule Corp's compliance officer has to be informed of what's happened. The compliance officer reaches out to the startup CEO and tells him that or her that when working with Molecule, there are rules of engagement with clinicians that must be followed. And they ask the CEO to attend a six-hour training on the topic. So the good news is the, the deal hasn't fallen apart, but this just exemplifies that there is so much difference between the regulatory oversight that pharma is subjected to. Startups often have no idea what the parameters are that the pharmaceutical companies are working within and that they apply to them once they want to start partnering with pharma. I think you give a lot of grace to that deal because in my experience, (laughs) the second that happens, everyone walks away because the pharma people can be personally liable at a certain level or at a minimum professionally liable. So that could be a deal breaker right there. So they must be really interested in Health Tech Inc. that they're deciding (laughs) to continue. (laughs) Or at least in our composite narrative. But I really think that Aside from the regulatory requirements for clinical trials and drug development, which could be a, its own podcast, regulations and compliance are a cornerstone for how pharma companies work. It's really about getting helping startups understand what the boundaries are and that they, even if they're not initially obligated, once they partner with pharma, they're going to have to adhere to the same rules. Should we go back to our composite example for a minute? Yes, we should. Let me just level set here. Okay, so we're... 10, 11 months into our process here, we just had a really awkward meeting. And now we're back in the office and you're giving a little bit of background context to another thing that probably with Health Tech Inc., Molecule is going to be paying particular attention to because now they're clued into the fact that potentially Health Tech Inc. is not entirely buttoned up, let's just say, relative to their compliance chops. So they're also going to start looking now into patient information, HIPAA, et cetera. What happens now? Let's imagine that we're we're picking up a due diligence after the meeting that was launched. IT security and data privacy audits are going to be conducted. The good news is Health Tech actually has made sure that they are HIPAA compliant, they're following GDPR guidelines. That's good. But the platform they have does not have the appropriate data security measures in place. And so it was for a cyber attack. 
So Molecule requires health tech to build out thorough data security measures. It'll take about eight months for health tech to become compliant. It'll require multiple audits and then actually be ready to submit to an IT penetration test. So health tech contracts with an IT security consultant and it invests in safeguards to work with Molecule corporations. So this is something that they have not even budgeted for and never could have imagined that it was going to take another eight months. You know, the other issue that I think becomes really important as a corollary to that, pharma expects a lot of times ISO compliance. So there has to be processes, what adverse event reporting, or just simply who has access, what's the permission levels. I remember one time in the middle of one such audit, the company got dinged because they didn't have an SOP for their SOPs. Which makes sense if you think about it, but that is generally speaking not the way a four-person startup is going to roll at that level, at, you know, that point in their development. Yes, startups are nimble. They move quickly. They build things. They break. They fix them. This whole notion of process is one of the, you know, really big causes of the pharma startup gap. Pharma companies have process galore and they need it. They have to modulate risk in all different forms. And so this, again, is an example of where setting expectations and talking early on about how long things are going to take, what processes are needed, really just understanding on both sides. This is going to be a little bit of stress and pressure for each, but that they have to meet each other and work around these requirements. All right. So now we are, I think, a year and one month in. And that's right. <laughs> uh, we, we have completed our security audit. And now the startup has more processes than they ever thought was even possible. And that they had any idea that they even needed. Right. So once these evaluations are done, they're presented and discussed in Molecule. They have an internal review committee, of course. And now Molecule is ready to continue negotiations about the deal structure. This is probably about 18 months. 12 to 18 months after the initial conversations. But health tech is now exhausted, not just mentally, but they have no more funding. And they're actually unable to get their next round of investment without a signed pilot contract. The deal is never completed and health tech goes out of business because they're out of money. Molecule goes on to look at other interesting digital health companies that they might want to partner with. That's a sad ending. It is a sad ending, but these are the facts of life. Startups really are under financial pressure. If it's going to take 18 months, they need to know that up front. They need to be able to plan for it. But anything that can be done on either side to make that a shorter time period is really a win-win. And this is where, again, we want to work with pharma to help them understand the impact of their process and that delaying things months, two months, three months, is something that's really hard for startups to live with and to sustain. So we look to our pharma members and we encourage them to have as much flexibility as possible around legal compliance and communication, the things that often really get gummed up. This is why it's challenging. This is a transformation in how they do business and how they engage with patients and clinicians. And that's why digital health has so much promise for pharma, but it also contributes to why this is very challenging and why pharma is often not as nimble as our startups would, would hope. 
Well, I also think that the story that you articulated might cause pharma a little bit of introspection because it is certainly possible for someone who works on the pharma side to be very intrigued by what's going on with all the digital health solutions that are starting up. It's very interesting. And they could regard having these conversations with a startup as almost an education for them a learning opportunity, if you will. And and they may sort of know that in their heart of hearts that it isn't going to go anywhere, but they might not be realizing the negative impact all of that time. I mean, time is obviously an opportunity cost. If that startup is spending all this time and energy completing the cyber audit, then they're not spending that time and energy maybe selling to a customer that is actually going to help pay the bills. So I think it's it's really important just this kind of mutual understanding, not only from the health tech point of view relative to what's going on at pharma, but then also from the pharma point of view relative to the potential impact that that, you know, 11 months that didn't go anywhere could have on that particular entity. A lot of the very forward-thinking pharmaceutical companies have digital health strategies in place. They have figured out which areas of digital health they think will be the most impactful to them, the areas they want to start on first. So I think there are certainly pharma companies that are just interested in learning and meeting and finding out what's happening in the digital health ecosystem. But I think a lot of them do want to do partnerships and deals. They're genuinely interested in engaging the startups for productive partnerships. But I think the devil is in the details and it's where the gap sort of opens up and actually creating that successful partnership, getting all the way to the end is a struggle for both of them. And, you know, the one thing that I also want to emphasize here, some of what we're talking about, I mean, obviously, Health Tech Inc., well, maybe not obviously, but let's just say in this case, the reason why Health Tech Inc. was able to get off the ground is because it had a viable value proposition to better patient care. This is something that ultimately filled a gap in patient care. Like in the example that you just said, they were in the clinic yep. and the patients loved it. But maybe the reason why that health tech went to pharma is because there's a lot of really great use cases that there's no funding for. Because the problem with trying to get money from a provider organization or even a payer organization is that the first question that's going to get asked is, in a way, show me the money. And I'm certainly not saying that that is not also true at a pharma company, but the financial implications or the value proposition is a little bit different over at pharma, which could enable some of these care gaps to get filled because it's worth it to pharma to do it, that nobody else, I mean, there's no other value prop for any other stakeholder in the healthcare ecosystem. You know, we can be really reductive here and be like, you know, pharma charges way too much for their drugs and whatever, like pick the litany of complaints against pharma. But at the same time, sometimes they're the brightest hope for some of these companies to get funding, which ultimately could help patients. Pharma has a lot to offer digital health startups besides deep pockets, which they can offer great sales channels. They have wonderful connections and ways to reach doctors that would be impossible or extremely expensive for a startup to build. They have all sorts of resources. They can help a startup navigate um, the regulatory waters. So pharma has a lot to offer to startups and that makes them very attractive partners or potential clients or customers. 
we see a lot of startups that have pharma as part of their business model because it's a win for pharma also. Pharma loves digital health because they can deliver more value to patients. They can, you know, digital health can help enhance communication with patients, help with patient education tools and games. Digital health startups have great ideas about collecting real world evidence and data, which pharma really needs. There's also a bunch of digital health tools that will help identify patients, speed up clinical trials, enhance efficiency. So let me just ask you one more question, and then I'd definitely like to ask you to explain what's going on at Farmstars. Pharma, in their dealings with provider organizations, they don't actually sell anything, (laughs) if you think about it. Like, they're not asking that doctor to open up their checkbook and write a check to pharma. I've heard many people say that, that the healthcare industry is the only industry in which one person buys dinner, another person orders the dinner, and somebody else eats it, right? (laughs) Like the provider is the one that's ordering dinner in that example, but somebody else is paying for it. So it's a little bit of a debatable point whether pharma is actually good at selling anything to a provider. They're good at encouraging or influencing a provider to order something. Yet I also often see startups thinking that pharma is going to sell their therapeutic. I just wonder whether that's something that you have experience with and how that works out. There's really a very rich world of digital health solutions beyond just pure therapeutics that are of great interest to providers and to pharma. And I think your point also around sort of who's buying and who's selling is really important. At the end of the day, pharma's trying to convince the provider to write a, a prescription. So they are very much promoting their solutions to the providers. They're also often promoting their solutions to patients. But you're right, they also have to work with the payers. And that's sort of a separate track that's often not seen or that startups aren't even aware of the work that pharma does to make sure that their drugs are reimbursed at appropriate levels and you know that the payers have the evidence. Pharma is very science and evidence oriented and very interested in data. And this is an important point that startups need to have keep in mind when they go to pitch uh, pharma, that they can't just sort of come in and say how something should work and would work. Pharma's going to want to see the evidence. Have you done some testing? Have you done some trials? What is the data? What is the impact on patients? What is the impact on outcomes? And this is another important point that sometimes startups lose track of in their eagerness to just have a conversation with pharma. So it sounds like there's kind of two flavors of deals. One of them is it's something pharma and the startup intend to charge a third party for. And in those examples, then obviously the pharma's existing model of going to payers, getting themselves on some sort of formulary or getting their tool paid for, like those rules apply in that case where there's money to be exchanged with a third party. The other flavor of this is that it's something that pharma chooses to give away. And in that case, if you're the health tech inc, all of your revenue would then be coming from pharma because pharma is going to give away, you know, your product. Exactly. And I think understanding pharma's needs, how they work, what they will pay for is so important for startups. 
recognizing that, yes, brand differentiation is something of value, but so is medication adherence. So are tools that help, you know, educate patients and clinicians, or even just sometimes collection of data is something that that pharma struggles with and the digital health is perfect. Digital health solutions are perfectly positioned to assist with. Talk a little bit about Farmstars, Naomi, and where people can go to get more information. Farmstars is the really first and only pharma-focused digital health startup accelerator. And what we want to do is bridge the pharma startup gap in order to facilitate more deals and more successful partnerships. The way we do this is we run a 10-week accelerator for uh, 10 startups that apply and then are selected to participate. We have pharmaceutical members that support the accelerator and are committed to meeting with the startups once they're done with the program at our showcase event. And we are available online at Farmstars with a PH, farmstars.com. We are accepting new members. We have founding members already. We also are welcoming applicants. July 21st is the deadline for application and our accelerator program starts September 1st. We also have an executive ed piece for the pharmaceutical members to help them bridge the gap and help them understand what they can do to be better partners with the startups. We're really all about driving partnership and bringing these two parties uh, together. Farmstars.com? Yes, farmstars.com. Naomi Freed, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Stacey, it was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for having me.